This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Good morning. I'm uh, Bruce Roberts, uh, class president from 1968, and I welcome you all here to our presentation on the drought, uh, being sponsored by the uh, Cal Class of 1968 Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement in the Goldman School of Public Policy. Because we all went to Cal, we tried to figure out the longest possible name <laughs> to confuse all of our Stanford friends. Uh, in any event, we call ourselves CCDE. We have a nice program for you today. Let me start off by introducing a few people. Uh, Dean Brady down here in front is Dean of the School of <laughs> Goldman School of Public Policy. Thank you. And uh, Larry Rosenthal is the executive director of our center. And uh, let's see, uh, Dee Dee Van Lobensels and Bob Wong are our co-chairs of our center. And some of our members, members are down here in front. And uh, let's see, uh, uh, Lynn. Oh, where's Lynn? There she was. She helped me. There's Lynn back up there. Lynn is, is head in, uh, de- for development for the Goldman School of Public Policy. And she makes sure that all of us get, over our, get all of our pledges funded on time. In any event, what happened for our 40th uh, reunion was we decided that we were living in a society where nobody was being civil. And uh, we felt that maybe our class and our years here at Cal had some, some cause of that, uh, of that style that we're living in. So we decided to, to, to take what, uh, what we've learned in our remaining uh, 40 years after Cal and find a way to work with each other in a civil fashion. That is to say, where I listen to you, you listen to me, I don't call you names. And unfortunately, we see so much of that in our public governments, from, from our city, uh, city councils to our national government, they're not getting anything done. So we're trying to, to work with that. And for democratic engagement, we're trying to find a way to help people in small communities and cities participate in the budgeting process and uh, learn tools of communicating together and trying to get something accomplished as opposed to just yelling at each other. So that's really what we're up to. Our goal is to raise $2 million to endow our center. Uh, We've come a long way on that. Our 50th reunion is coming up, unfortunately, quite soon. So those of you in our class might hear from us uh, uh, more often than others. Uh, Our our, uh, moderator today is Dick Beers. Dick was the ASUC president uh, in our senior year, and there's material about Dick in, in, in in the handout. But the most important thing about Dick, I think, is that he gave us uh, John Stewart at Comedy Central, and so uh, I know that every every night I used to watch that for my news because it was the only news I could trust. So, without further ado, I would give you Dick Beers to introduce the panelists and thank you for coming. Uh, the topic today is water policy and the drought balancing competing interests. I think a key thing is that we do have some very exciting technologies to address our challenges. That's why our emphasis today is on the question of policy. How do we make things happen? Uh, California, I think we all realize, can be quite a paradox. Uh, it's, we've got the greatest public university in human history, uh, a state which is a leader in innovation, Uh, We can be extraordinarily efficient in regulating electrical appliances like refrigerators, 
and yet we have mind-boggling tax policies like Proposition 13. I don't think if any of you want to know how much Disneyland pays in property tax. Uh, and also, we were the last state to regulate groundwater. So it's a complicated state. Sometimes we do things very well, sometimes not so well. Uh, we are very fortunate today to have a very distinguished panel. I'm, I'm very excited about this. I've had a chance to read a number of materials they have prepared. We've had some email dialogue. So I know you're going to get some tremendous insights. I'm going to introduce our panelists in the order in which they'll speak. Uh, to my immediate right is David Sedlak, who's co-director of the Berkeley Water Center. He's a professor of mineral engineering. He's a director of the Institute of Environmental Science and Engineering. He's very interested in the development of local sources of water. He's authored a, a wonderful book called Water 4.0. And he's also done a lot of research focused on wastewater reuse and uh, new approaches for managing the urban water cycle, amongst many other things. Our next speaker is Felicia Marcus, who is chair of the State Water Resources Board. Uh, happily, she has worked in both the public and private sector, so I hope she'll have some observations on the role for both. She's headed the LA Department of Public Works, which has garnered numerous awards for environmental excellence. She's been the Western Director for the National Natural Resources Defense Council and an Executive Vice President of the Trust for Public Land, which does outstanding work. Our last speaker to my far right is Mel Levine, who has served in the California Assembly from 77 to 82, U.S. Congress from 83 to 93, President of the L.A. Department of Water and Power, Council and former partner at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, and at the request of Vice President Gore, was co-president of Builders for Peace, a private sector effort that was assisting, assisting in addressing the Middle East peace process, which was probably good background for dealing with water issues in California. <laughs> so without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to David. And both David and Felicia are going to provide us a bit of a context. I, mean, I think there's not a day almost when we read in the paper something about water in California. So they're going to give us a little framework to evaluate these issues. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, I'm glad to see everyone's doing their part for the drought. Um, I cut off my long hair to, uh, to save water for the drought, and it's, it's working out pretty good. Our, our per capita use is way down in my household. Um, I, I came up with a, a question I wanted to answer this morning to kick off the panel, and I realized the question um, is a question that I really can't answer um, and, and maybe I look to your help to answering it. Maybe we should read this without the question mark, as in, should California's cities seek water self-sufficiency, dot, 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 the following will happen. So I think we could have had this discussion about the drought and public policy in 1977 after that drought, and we could have had it in 1992 after that drought or during that drought. Drought, but we're having this one today, and rather than do a repeat of those uh, those previous discussions, I think there's something different this time. What's different this time is that our technologies have evolved to a point where it's possible for cities to ask this question about self-sufficiency. And I want to show you today kind of what's going through the minds of city managers and uh, elected officials and utility managers as they contemplate how much resources and effort to put into uh, pushing towards water self-sufficiency. And then I want to show you that this is kind of uh, 
has a chance to really shake up the battle lines in this long-standing uh, debate between water and whether water in California should be allocated to uh, agriculture, the environment, and cities, or what fraction of our water should go to those three important users that have uh, claims on it. And so uh, I'll, I'll do that, and then hopefully the other panelists can give you a little bit more background on the public policy elements of things. So a little background of our city's imported water supply. So if you think about where the water comes from for our cities and our main metropolitan areas of Southern California and the Bay Area, in the south it comes from the Colorado River, there's a picture of Lake Mead, or the eastern Sierra, uh, Mono Lake, or it comes from the northern part of the state and it passes through the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. So anyone who's a student of uh, California water or has read Cadillac Desert or just follows the newspaper knows that these are three pressure points with respect to the state's water system. Here in the Bay Area, we're blessed to mainly be supplied by two imported water systems, the Hetch Hetchy system, which brings water to San Francisco, and the McCullamy system that brings water to the East Bay. There are other systems out there, but I'm giving you a sense of what we have to provide us with water. And you can see that these all rely upon surface water. And surface water is very interesting with respect to its response to the drought because there's only so much water you can store in a reservoir, and they get depleted after a four or five or six year drought. So we're doing a great job managing our water, but if it doesn't rain, these, uh, these water bodies are gonna become more and more stressed. And so there's this new approach that's uh, arising to uh, diversify our water supply and reduce our risk of catastrophic drought and their local water sources. And so last week uh, we had a meeting, uh, Felicia was there and a number of other people from around the state uh, in Southern California, we asked the question, could Los Angeles become water self-sufficient? And I've had discussions with the Association of Bay Area Governments about whether the Bay Area could become water self-sufficient. And it really comes down to how much uh, we invest in these four different approaches for diversifying our water supply. Stormwater harvesting, that is, if you thought about the amount of water that falls in our cities, if we could capture half of that water, it would be enough to get us through the entire year. Now, our California hydrology makes that challenging, but you could see if we could capture a quarter of our water, that would be half of our water supply. And we're seeing utilities in Southern California, Sonoma County Water Agency, and others investing more and more money in stormwater harvesting, so capturing the water that actually falls within the city limits. Um, water reuse is this practice of water recycling where we take the water that goes into our sewage treatment plants and we treat it to the point where we can use it for a drinking water supply. So you may have heard of the kind of so-called purple pipe approach, the idea of treating our, our sewage affluent so it could be used for landscape irrigation. The current direction that things are going is actually treating that water to be part of the potable water supply and it would be equal to all the other waters in terms of how it goes into the system and how it satisfies our demand. And since we use about half of our water indoors and could recover 80% of that, that's enough to grow our water supply by about 40% if we could recycle it all. There's water use efficiency. That's, uh, that's the water geek shorthand for conservation and, uh, and stopping the leaks. And so we all know about the state's uh, success in reducing water use by about uh, 35% in, in many communities. And that's something that probably won't go away after the drought, or if we put our minds to it, won't go away. We could probably squeeze a little more out of that 
till we get to the point of being like Australia or Israel, and, and that'll get us probably uh, another third uh, of our water supply growing. And then we have seawater desalination, the so-called option of last resort. But there are many countries around the world now that are getting a significant fraction of their drinking water from seawater desalination. This technology has become more and more efficient over time. So Perth, Australia, Israel, they get more than half of their drinking water from seawater desalination. Here in California, we have a new desalination plant coming online in Carlsbad, north of San Diego, 50 million gallons a day, and it'll be online this fall. It'll be the largest desalination plant in the Western Hemisphere. So there's not a question of whether we can do it. Technologically, it's possible, and it's cost-competitive with the kinds of water supplies we've been developing. I want to think a little about the policy implications and the kind of economic implications of uh, what happens if we do do it. So the first thing I want you to recognize is that our current water supply system is very energy-intensive. So the red uh, bars here show you the uh, energy used to provide water by either the Colorado River system or the state water project delivering water to Los Angeles. And whichever units you care for, kilowatt hour per acre foot or kilowatt hour per cubic meter, um, providing water to California cities, especially Southern California, is about the most energy intensive thing we can do with our imported water systems. For example, the yellow bars are seawater desalination. So there are parts of Los Angeles where we use more energy to pump water up and over the Tehachapis than it takes to actually desalinate seawater. All of the other technologies I talked about use less energy. Water efficiency uses zero energy. It's like virtual water. You're creating water. Um, water reuse, the blue bars here, water recycling, uses uh, less than a quarter of the energy that, uh, that desalination or imported water takes. Um, and, and many of the other practices that we can adopt, like stormwater harvesting. So when we get serious about greenhouse gas reductions, um, imported water doesn't look like such a good thing. And three of these four uh, local water sources are much more energy efficient. Water security. This is a figure from the IPCC's report on uh, climate change, and it shows you the predicted uh, rain, average rainfall that uh, changes in rainfall, rather, that will occur as climate change uh, hits us. And so the way you read this figure is that uh, for each degree centigrade increase in global temperature, that's the, de that's the percentage decrease or increase in water. So best case scenario, the planet warms by two degrees centigrade in the coming century, probably going to be more like three or four. And you can see that uh, uh, in the, the Bay, in California, the predictions could be somewhere around 10 or 12 percent reduction in uh, precipitation. And if you couple that with warmer temperatures, meaning more evaporation and evapotranspiration, and the shift of our uh, precipitation from, uh, from snow to rain, uh, we're going to have a real problem with those imported water. Water supplies. There are other things about water security that imported water supplies are particularly vulnerable to, like earthquakes. An earthquake could happen and cut your, uh, your water intake. Uh, one of the Delta uh, islands could fail in the Sacramento Delta and contaminate the water supply with salt. So these local water supplies have a benefit in terms of security. And finally, I just want to mention something that I'm calling the Lee Kuan Yew effect. Um, 
In, 19, in the 1960s, when Singapore and Malaysia became independent from Britain, uh, the Prime Minister of Malaysia said this quote here, um, if Singapore's foreign policy is prejudicial to Malaysia's interests, we could always bring pressure to bear on them by threatening to turn off the water at Johor. And Johor was the imported water supply from Malaysia. So Singapore, the nation state, city state, uh, uh, basically had a foreign country uh, controlling their water supply, and that foreign country uh, had already indicated that they might try to influence Singapore in many ways. And uh, Lee Kuan Yew had lived through the Japanese invasion of Singapore, and the first thing the Japanese did was uh, bomb the water supply and, and cause the, uh, the allies to surrender. And so na- uh, water supply in Singapore has been a national security issue for decades now. And Singapore diversified their water supply using the approaches I showed you here. And when it came time for Singapore to renegotiate their contracts with Malaysia, they were in a much better position than they would have been had they not uh, diversified their water supply. And I think that as we move into this discussion about uh, cities and agriculture and the environment and their claims on water supply and investments that we might make in the future in water supply, it's useful for us to think about Singapore and how by diversifying their water supply and approaching self-sufficiency, they were able to uh, negotiate from a position of more power. And when we think about people in the cities trying to represent the interests of cities and the environment, um, these diversifications that we're seeing will change that political dynamic. And with that, I'll turn it over to the other speakers and uh, look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Felicia Marcus. Hi. Uh, that, uh, David is so great. He's one of my heroes on this. He's, he's done more to make water intelligible to people uh, with Water 4.0 and just with his uh, skill and being able to bring complex issues down to an intelligible thing. I, c- I really need to learn. So his, I'm about to give you the Spalding Gray approach to California water, um, which is uh, in just a few minutes uh, it, it, to give you just a sense of some of the issues out there and, and focus a bit on civility towards the end to seed our conversation. Um, I'll tell you at the outset I've got more words on these slides than you should ever have, and there are more slides than you should ever have. And I did it because it will be PDF and you can use it for notes later on. So I'm not going to go through everything. But I want to give you uh, a little bit of a sense of where we are in California water. I won't hit every single issue. We don't have a lot of time. But uh, hopefully I'll have chosen wisely, uh, again, to start the conversation. Uh, I talk a little bit about California water to arm you, because there's a lot of dialogue out there that tends to be of the level of an Emily Latella Saturday Night Live skit or a Monty Python routine. I always call it the is so is not. You're a jerk. No, I'm not level of discourse that characterizes California water. Um, and so we're gonna t- I'm going to focus on that a bit, given the nature of the center. Uh, give you a bit of a drought update, because we are in the worst drought of the century, and then talk a bit about the future. And I, uh, like David, am actually optimistic that we have all the tools we need uh, to really extend our water resources and intelligently face a, a challenging future, even with a climate change with our climate change scenarios and with population growth, but the key element that it's going to take to achieve that is folks getting off their butts and off their uh, high horses and working together in ways uh, that the discourse doesn't always uh, provide. 
So this is uh, what I call the elephant slide, and this is I did this so it could be a wallet card um, to remind people. I've made wallet cards out of this and laminated them, um, and the reason there's an elephant on it is because of the parable of the blind men and the elephant where they're each touching a different part of this miraculous creature and describing something completely different. And that is frequently what the discourse is all about, where people will see, even people I've seen working in water for decades, will know one piece of it very clearly and seemingly have no idea of the other piece or not value the other pieces or belittle the other pieces. Belittling is somehow better than not even acknowledging them. And so this is just to, to arm you a bit on the basics so that when someone comes up and says, if those insert expletive jerks, agencies, whatever, we'll just do this one thing, we wouldn't have any problems. We can conserve our way to the future. We can build a few dams and the problem will be gone. You know, you will know that they're just wrong. They may, may just be misguided, they may be sincere, but they're wrong. The answer lies in taking a diversified series of uh, actions, and, and frankly, my, my bottom line point is we have to do them all, and we have to do them all now. The good news is we're on the march to doing them all now. So here's what you need to know. First is we do have the most variable hydrology in the country. When it rains and snows, it really does, and when it doesn't, it really doesn't. And that requires a different kind of management strategy than you would have if you had more consistent Rainfall. It means that storage is important. Storage is not a dirty word. It has become a dirty word in some parts of the community who see every dam and the havoc they have indeed wrought on salmon populations and other populations in particular as a dirty word. But the fact of the matter is our, our precipitation does not fall where most of our people and most of our agriculture is our, and our economic uses. It doesn't fall in the time of year. California, as we know it today, would not exist if it weren't for that system that David put up there. And that system was put up there with the conveyance, but also with the storage, precisely because it doesn't rain a regular amount and snow a regular amount every year. So that's just the reality we have to deal with in managing our water system. We have to plan for multi-year droughts. I mean, what we have learned in this drought, which is interesting, is that urban areas, even since the last drought, have managed to do an awesome job, large urban areas, of becoming resilient in the face of our normal three-year drought cycle, which is something to really be proud of. The problem we have this year is we are not in a normal three-year drought cycle. We are in the drought of our lives, so I'll get back to that. The other thing is that every area has a different mix of sources. It can have surface water. It can have surface water. It can see. Most Californians can't see where their water comes from. It comes from that system because most Californians live in Southern California. Most Californians live in urban areas. If you take Southern California plus our coastal urban areas up and down the coast, you've got the vast majority of our population, and their water comes from hundreds of miles away, other than some areas that do use groundwater. Some have groundwater, some don't. A groundwater basin can be different here than to the other end of the building. It, the geology can be very different, so all groundwater basins are alike. Some areas don't have any at all like San Diego doesn't have any large ones to speak of. Well, that's why you have San Diego investing money in desal, and you have San Diego being on the cutting edge pushing for direct potable reuse. Why? Because they don't have a big groundwater basin that they can put captured stormwater into or recycled water that needs to be percolated for further treatment. So necessity is the mother of invention there, and for them, being at the end of every pipe and not having a groundwater basin 
uh, either as a resource or to use for storage, they have to go to the most expensive uh, to try and diversify their portfolios. Again, so the conversation about water is going to vary depending upon where you are and what you're talking about. No silver bullet. Uh, a friend of mine calls it silver buckshot. Um, but it's actually, uh, how that's kind of a violent, it's like killing birds, one bird with two cents, violent metaphor. I like to try sports metaphors, go bears. Um, but I didn't come up with one for this talk. I actually am a bear alum, I realized as I was sitting here this morning, but more of a bear cub. Summer school, 1977. <laughs> go bears. I root for the bears. Um, the, the key, key thing here is climate change and other drivers is uh, game changers. Uh, what David was talking about, about that change in temperature, that means we're going to lose our snowpack more often than not. That's why this year is also bad, not just because we're in the fourth year of a drought, but because it was warmer. We have the worst snowpack in 500 years. So you can look at reservoir levels in January, but what the experts know is that the snow is going to melt and refill those reservoirs during the course of the spring and summer or replenish surface waters. We just don't have any this year. And that's what's going to be regular in a time of climate, which is why if you look, is it two, is it three, is it four, is it five decades down, we're in a pickle even if we don't grow, which is a piece of why the administration started working on a different strategy even before the drought uh, became apparent. Our population will grow. And then we also know that while this may be the drought of our century in our lives or our grandparents' lives, we know from geophysical evidence that we've had much longer droughts in California. Apparently there was a doozy around the time of Henry VIII. Um, so we know it can happen here, and we know it did happen in Australia in the last decade where they had had the same three-year drought cycle, and they say they thought that it was going to rain uh, for about six years because they usually had a three-year drought cycle. And then it rained a little, and they thought, wow, they dodged a bullet another bullet metaphor, sorry, uh, that they were going to be okay. And then they had the three worst years yet, and they had to do everything that was on uh, David's Fawcett chart all at once because they couldn't risk their major centers. And they hemorrhaged billions of dollars on desal facilities that have never been operated but that they're still paying for. So they said, hey, it's an expensive insurance policy, believe me, as they head back into drought, other than in Perth, which uses it. Um, it's cheaper to do the conservation, recycling, and stormwater capture. So that's what they have been doing. We're trying to avoid that economic uh, and environmental impact. And then, of course, as David said, there are a mix of solutions, and those solutions, as I indicated, are going to vary, and we've got to talk about storage. The only thing that can approximate that snowpack in size are groundwater basins. So that's why the administration pushed for groundwater legislation passed last. took 100 years to do it after the surface water system um, uh, came into being, and uh, it, it'll take a while to do, but it's, it's pretty good. And then the drought, of course. Uh, I've already talked about why it's bad. It's particularly bad. Let me just flash through these just as a sense. That's a snowpack slide. It's kind of depressing. We're the line way at the bottom that doesn't even rise above the bottom. And then impacts. Hundreds of thousands of acres of fields fallowed in the Central Valley. It would be ten times as bad if they didn't rely on groundwater. A lot of folks out of work. The groundwater levels are dropping precipitously. That's a zero-sum game of sorts. Um, but you want to use your groundwater in a time of drought. Thank God it was there, and we've got a plan to make sure it's there for the next one. There are issues we can talk about if you want. We've been delivering uh, water to communities in tankers, in bottles. We've been running pipe and drilling wells. Small rural communities, they know where their water comes from and where, when it's gone. Um, a big issue in the rural parts of the state, huge fish and wildlife issues, and you've seen the um, wildfire impact. 
We've done a lot. I won't go through it. Uh, food disaster reliefs, a lot of changes in our water rights permits, emergency changes, same with federal rules, uh, cutbacks in contract water. That system that you saw has been cut back, at least the spine of it from the state and federal projects. We've curtailed water rights, meaning juniors are cut off 100% in favor of their seniors because we have a seniority-based system in California like most of the West. We've even cut off junior-senior water rights holders who have never been cut off before, and we're in litigation. We'll be in a lot of litigation. We've also tried to speed more water. Uh, on recycling in particular, we goosed um, 1% financing fairly early. We streamlined permitting for outdoor use and groundwater recharge, and we're working very quickly with an expert panel on the um, use for indirect potable and surface water, again, where you just put it in a reservoir, but it's going to get retreated again. Uh, or for direct potable, we'll have an expert panel thing. And then the wa urban water conservation regs, which we are the first state in the nation to do that at a statewide level, and it was something the governor felt he had to do when on April 1st, one month before the end of the snow season, there was just no snow to measure at the uh, annual snowpack or the monthly snowpack survey. And, of course, we ended up getting um, a, a bond pass. Thank you very much to all of you who voted for it uh, because it was part of a plan, which I'll show you in just a moment. Uh, and that gives us money for conservation, recycling, stormwater capture, cleaning up contaminated groundwater basins, ecosystem protection, et cetera. Uh, we're doing pretty well. Um, folks have changed, uh, saved a lot. Uh, some have saved 45%, others not so well, a sliding scale based on how much folks had done over the past 20 years or even uh, past the, uh, when the drought was declared. Um, what I've been saying is in the last big drought of the late 80s and early 90s, we learned what we could do indoors. Um, we can still do more, but huge push, particularly in Southern California, on low-flow toilets, shower fixtures, retrofitting, messaging about not leaving the water running when you brush your teeth and the like. Uh, this drought is showing us what we can do outdoors because of the stat that uh, David talked about where urban water users use 50% or in some cases a lot more of their water outdoors on ornamental landscaping, and that just seemed like the most cost-effective and the least quality-of-life intrusive uh, way to try and save water, given that we didn't know if we were in our own millennial drought or not, and we still do not know. And so that water saved on uh, artificially making our lawns look like they're in Ireland or Scotland uh, is water we're going to really need in the case of multiple dry years for much more important efforts, and, uh, and keeping it in Local storage is really very important, particularly when our supplemental state and federal projects uh, covered is bare. And we discovered our groundwater basins, which is really terrific. But we still have that kind of conflict that you've all seen that I talked about, whether it's fish versus people, environmentalists versus agricultural, urban versus ag, and the scapegoating and blaming of a particular water use that one might not like. This is a classic pattern to go through. It's people want to think there's something wrong or there's blame, and that doesn't mean there isn't, but it is a distraction from actually trying to solve our problems and figure out how to get better together. El Nino will not save us. I am sorry to be the one to say this. Um, last year, uh, the El Nino predictions and the media lack of caveating of that really cost us a lot of water, as people believed. Oh, three-year drought cycle, El Nino will save us. Why do I have to conserve? So we lost a lot of momentum. This year, the signs for El Nino are much greater, but the reporting has been much better talking about the caveats. We don't know really whether it will be. We, we won't know till it hits. I, they're saying uh, December, even though it's likely we'll have one. It may just rain a lot and, and uh, flood a lot in Southern California, may not make it up north where those big reservoirs are, may not 
let's know. We have no idea. The ridiculously resilient ridge or blob that's been off the coast of Northern California is still there. Maybe it'll come at us and go around us like it did the last few years. We just can't know. We'll take all the rain and snow we can safely handle, and we don't want all the flooding, but again, this is not a reason to let down our guard. So I always say, how do we, we don't know. We just don't, we don't know. I love the marshmallow burn on Mr. Stay Puff's chest. I don't know why I love this. This is like my favorite picture. If I were a Facebook poster, I would send this one around, but I try to be more serious about my Facebook posts. So there's the reality. There's uh, uh, January 2013 and January 2014. It's the same or worse right now. This is California on climate change. This will become the regular thing. This is the Godzilla of all wake-up calls, to have to change and do all that retrofitting so that we can face that future. Reality is we're going to have sea level rise. That is not going to be good for those Delta Islands. Let me just say that. And fish and wildlife are in the tank not in the tank. That's a bad metaphor. But they're not doing. They're not in the tank. They're not in the toilet either. They're um. They're really in trouble. Um, let's just put it that way. We've taken too much water from them and blocked all their natural habitat. And we need to. We do need to. To do a better job of um, redressing that. Our population's going to rise. We're not going to be exporting our young. I used to say eating our young because I hung out with rugby players in college, and I thought that was a little too gruesome. Um, but the reality is we can do something about it, and David's book, of course, is one way um, to do it. And what he, what, what it, he talked about is also important is there's a way to look at the full-on water cycle to make the most use of every drop of water and every dollar. Because right now our flood control people, our water supply people, our wastewater people, you know, go through the list, tend to do their own thing in their specialties. And increasingly integrated water management is becoming a big deal, particularly in Southern California cities, San Francisco. And Sacramento, I have to say, was one of the early adopters of the Sacramento Water Forum. They really, and YOLO. I mean, there are all kinds of things happening that are really good. And the reality, just so I'm not totally depressing again, is that we are doing a lot about it. There are all kinds of integrated water management projects happening, people coming together. There are farmers helping fish in the Sac Valley in a way that's really remarkable, birds too. There are drought angels helping folks. The legislature has taken more action in the last few years than in the last three decades. Now, I'm pretty cynical about the legislatures, but I, you have to give credit where credit is due, whether it's passing the human right to water legislation, that's a whole issue of safe drinking water that we can talk about if you're interested, Delta reform legislation 09, which is what drew me back into the water world after having run screaming out of it um, at the end of the Clinton administration when I was, like Dave Howkamp back there, we were back at EPA working on air and water issues, but water issues in particular, I, I always say I was tired of being the princess of peace. And uh, it's hard to be the princess of peace when you're pissed. So I had to take a break and go to land conservation. And then um, groundwater legislation passing the point. The bond is awesome. It happened because the governor said he would only do it if it was part of a plan versus the usual grab bag. I'll show you the plan. You can look at it later on your, your own. Uh, they moved the drinking water program and created the Office of Sustainable Solutions in our office. So you'd have one uh, agency responsible source to tap so we could do that kind of integrated thinking. And then we got all kinds of tools to get information and enforce our uh, ancient water right system in California. Um, and those have been uh, seen as just as inviolate as not touching groundwater. So again, perfect, no, but progress, uh, yes. And again, all kinds of great things at the local level as well. Water Action Plan, I'm just going to say, um, is easy to look up. 
but you have to do the water action plan or else you get the California water plan, which is great and huge. But this is just a 20-page or so document that's basically our manifesto uh, from almost two years ago before the drought to say, here's what we have to do to deal with climate change. We have to get over ourselves. We have to do it all. As opposed to picking winners and losers, your favorite stakeholder in a given administration, we're putting it all on deck. Conservation, recycling, stormwater capture, desal, appropriate cases, dealing with the delta, both conveyance and ecosystem protection, preparing for drought, preparing for floods, protecting ecosystems ahead of the curve rather than waiting for the Endangered Species Act to kick in, safe water, flood protection, et cetera, and also doing it in a flexible way and figuring out how to fund it. Are we done? No. Are we on the march? Yes, because everybody could see themselves here and could relent on seeing their other folks seeing their issue up here. And it's actually worked something of a miracle with some people. The water wars are not over. It's not all one big happy family. Uh, but we know that our relationship with water has to evolve. Mayor Garcetti of LA issued a water directive some months ago to cut LA's reliance on imported water in half in 10 years. That's using all those tools. Well, they, now they have to do it. Which is why I keep putting this slide up and reminding everybody who will listen that he said it. Um, but they're going to have to be cutting edge on conservation, recycling, stormwater capture. That's their plan. And, it, and out of it, he knows he's going to get to Greenest City, the most park per city in the nation. So there are multiple benefit win-wins. may not yield all the water in the world. Uh, other things, I think recycling uh, will yield more dollar-for-dollar uh, dollar benefits, but... Stormwater capture allows for flood control and greening and uh, water quality improvements. And then our relationship with each other has to evolve, and this gets to the civility part of it all. You've got ag, you've got, I, I don't know why this fisherman kissing a salmon, I really like that picture, sorry, that one cracked me up. Um, the environmentalist um, and uh, urban water users, um, as opposed to finger pointing, have to figure out how to reach across divides and figure out how everybody gets what they need. And if you have that conversation, you can get a lot done. And that's what integrated water management promises, some money dangling there for people who come together across traditional divides and in certain geographies to get something done. I always call this the challenge of ecosystem management. Some of you have heard me say that, not ecosystem management. You have to learn to deal with people who don't come from the same way of life, who don't have the same interests, and figure out how to move forward together, just like you do in land conservation, actually. And then, just to give you a couple pictures of where the conflict uh, tends to be, uh, the California water pie is one where how you slice it becomes a topic of dialogue. Some of the stats you will hear, agriculture uses 80% of the developed water, urban uses 20, that 80-20. You have to say developed water, because it's not all the water, it's the water taken out for human use. Agriculture folks hate that. They prefer the 50% to the environment, 40% to ag, 10% to um, urban, which is actually the same pie. But then the misnomer and what they're saying there is that they make it sound, and, and some of them believe, that all 50% is going to those crazy environmental regulations. Well, they're not. They're actually going to wild and scenic rivers that Ronald Reagan took off the um, plan way back when. Uh, they go to require delta outflow to protect against salinity intrusion. If it gets too salty, it's not good for anybody in the delta or for export in Southern California, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one little slice of it, maybe 10% of it, is for in-stream flow for fish, and that's been slashed during the course of this drought. Just saying. So I want to say a pox on all the pies because people argue about the pie and use it uh, in whatever way makes them feel a little bit better, but it's not useful. 
And then finally, people have picked whatever use they don't like, whether it's new development, bottled water, uh, fracking, almonds, etc., to think it must be somebody else. It can't be something I can do. And I can go through each of these if you're interested. And there are issues with each of these that are legitimate in every community and every concern on every issue, but it's not a drought issue, actually. Walnuts take five times as much water as an almond. Should we ban walnuts? Beer takes a lot more water to make than bottled water. (laughs) Whenever I suggest, like, should we ban beer, everybody backs off. (laughs) Fracking actually doesn't use that much water in California. It has issues. They all have issues. And new development is usually more efficient than old development, and many communities are just forcing them to retrofit and more. So actually, new development can make you more water efficient. So again, complex, not simple. And this was my favorite, that people blame the governor and saying the problem was cheese. It was cheese. Well, it's true. Meat and cheese, dairy products, it takes a lot of water. That burger, hundreds. Steak, 1,600 gallons. So your food is your major consumption of water, not even your lawn. And it's urban people who are eating agricultural products. So when people say, oh, ag, they're using it. It's not like they're growing things to have a party at the end of the year and pat themselves on the back. So in any event, with that, if we can keep all that in mind and figure out how to move forward, uh, we're off to the races. Thank you, Felicia. And our next speaker is Mel Levine, who I mentioned in my introduction, spent five years in the Assembly and 10 years in Congress. And I think one thing that's kind of a recurring theme when we talk about issues in this country is the issue of political will. Whether you're talking about gun control or pension reform, people will say it's all a question of political will, which doesn't make me feel very good because it seems that that's something we're oftentimes lacking. But, Mel, I'd love to hear your perspective on, on, on that front. Thank you very much, Dick. Uh, first of all, I want to say that it's a real honor to be able to share a platform with David and Felicia. They're, as, you, as you've heard, they're two of the wisest and most thoughtful leaders in water policy, not only in the Bay Area and in California, but in the country. I've been long familiar with David's work. We don't know each other. Felicia, I have admired for over 30 years. We worked together a million years ago when we, um, when we were both a few years younger. And I have really uh, admired the leadership she's provided to the state and the country dur- during all of that time. Um, it's also a real privilege to be here with, uh, I guess, primarily the class of 68. Um, as someone from the class of 64, Uh, It's nice to be speaking to a bunch of younger people. Uh, (laughs) um, I also want to salute the Goldman School. Uh, I'm a proud member of the advisory board of the Goldman School. I think the Goldman School of Public Policy has been a magnificent institution for Cal, uh, for UC, for the state, for the country. I want to salute Dean Brady, under whose leadership the Goldman School has really uh, become... um, preeminent. So congratulations, Henry. Um, For those of you, um, those few of you who may follow some of this and have very long memories, uh, you would know that during my time in the state legislature and in the Congress, I had a strong environmental record. And I live in Los Angeles. 
So I'm sure that for some of you, those facts alone should qualify me to offer my remarks today. Um, I am not sure that I um, can answer all the questions of political will. What I intend to do today is really raise uh, issues that are complex and difficult, as Felicia indicated in her remarks. I intend to raise issues and raise questions rather than to provide answers. Um, the reason for this complexity may, ha may be at least in part uh, because we live in a state that epitomizes Mark Twain's immortal words that uh, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. Um, and in light of that history, uh, the difficulty in ending the rhetoric and building consensus and seeking the civility that the class of 68 is seeking is no easy task. Uh, but an often unstated but important part of our situation is that we live in a state that not only borders the ocean, but also discharges tremendous volumes of both wastewater and stormwater annually. We are not in the Dust Bowl territories. So to be fair, in California there is really no such thing as being out of water. What there is is a shortage of cheap fresh water. The technology to change that is readily available. And we know that finding sustainable water solutions for California is completely within our grasp. The conversation about how to get there is very much about politics, ideology, and policy. And like so much of what we face today, uh, many of those choices boil down to money and how money is spent. In most any normal year, Preserving and protecting water rights is an issue left to water engineers, lawyers, and staff from the state's water agencies. They deal in a world of minutia and long, drawn-out battles that mostly go on behind the scenes and that are not regularly followed by the public. However, in times of shortage like those we are experiencing now, there are very public discussions about sharing what water is available, reallocating water rights, developing new supplies and more. And water uh, is often discussed in these conversations as if it is a socialized commodity. But in California, water is not a socialized commodity. In other societies, some other societies, places like Israel, for example, and Australia now, water is regarded as an issue of national security. And as Felicia indicated, or I guess it was either David or Felicia, I got the, the, uh, the, the slides mixed up, David indicated, look at Singapore, uh, where water is controlled by the state. Uh, in Israel, there's even a national water company. So making needed societal um, water policy changes can be obviously made much more easily when you have a socialized system of water. In California, on the other hand, water is a first-in-right use, much like historical land and mining rights, with priority given in the order a claim is made. Outside of the governor's current drought orders, there is nor normally no divvying up of water supplies for the greater good, and agencies negotiate their own deals to procure water and gain an advantage in cost or reliability. Communities compete for water, and environmental protection is ensured through laws and mitigation requirements. So when we find ourselves in the position we are in now, talk of changing the way water is allocated is actually very unusual and is foreign to the public discourse in California other than in times like this. 
Right now, cities are complying with the governor's call for statewide water cuts, but as Felicia may suspect, the all-for-one and one-for-all approach of shared sacrifice is likely to wear thin if we enter another dry year. The fact is that California's urban customers have paid a lot for the water rights and infrastructure that supplies them. Southern California happens to be in particularly good shape because it collectively invested $5 billion through the Metropolitan Water District for local storage and sufficient water to make it through a prolonged drought. Cities have individually invested heavily in conservation and new sources of local water supply, and they will want the benefit of the investments their ratepayers have made. And in addition, or prior to the um, goals that Mayor Garcetti outlined that uh, Felicia put on the uh, board, it's important to understand that the city of Los Angeles, um, with one million more people today than it had in the early 1970s, today uses the same amount of water for the population of Los Angeles as Los Angeles did 45 years ago. That's quite extraordinary, um, and they're going to want the benefits of the conservation efforts they've made over two generations. So we have a far from a more socialized approach to statewide water management. Does this mean that water rights can never be apportioned differently? Certainly they, they could. But in assessing these prospects, a slew of complex, tough issues arise, many of which Felicia identified, especially toward the end of her remarks. Uh, I intend to touch on a number of these to focus on some of the issues, and again, as I said, not really to answer the questions, but to put them out there. Water rights are like a proprietary right. So if water rights were taken back by the state and reallocated, it would be viewed as a taking that would require compensation. Why? Because an area's economic viability and competitiveness rely greatly on its ability to have a reliable and affordable water supply. While we hear in the news about particular Northern California farmers effectively holding the state hostage by virtue of their senior water rights, let's remember that both Los Angeles and San Francisco are also prime examples of early California water rights in action, as David's chart showed with regard to importation of water in both parts of the state. Cities and economies grow and flourish based on their access to good, affordable water. Reallocating water rights is still possible, but existing water rights holders would have to be compensated for by the loss of those rights. It would, be, have to be, it would have to be handled similarly to a fair market value payment in an eminent domain proceeding. Possible, but very expensive. And with all of these issues, huge and difficult equity questions are not far from the surface. If we accept that a reallocation of water rights is truly a reallocation of property rights and ultimately of wealth, then we have to ask ourselves the flip side of the water rights question. Why should someone who came later get to take the water right from someone who came earlier? Is it because we as a state now see a better and higher use for water than we did before? Is it because those with junior rights would like the cost of developing new water resources to be shared amongst all water users? Is it because of a shift in political influence and with it a chance to change the rules of the game? One way around this quagmire is to leverage the one restriction the state reserves on all water rights, 
which is California's constitutional prohibition against the waste, against waste and the requirement that water use constitutionally in this state be both reasonable and beneficial. But these criteria have never really been defined. The courts have essentially said you have to look at this on a case-by-case basis. So if they are raised in the future, here are just a few uh, samples of the issues that would arise. Is it wasteful to grow rice or almonds in an arid state? Is it wasteful to water golf courses or water lawns in Palm Springs or water lawns anywhere for that matter? Should we limit certain types of water-intensive manufacturing? Felician named one, very popular one, a few minutes ago. And there are others, but none that quite achieved the response that Felicia's did. (laughs) Perhaps it is unreasonable to put water down a stream to protect non-native sport fish or to put water on a dry lake to protect non-endangered birds. And is it an unconstitutional taking without due process if water rights are reallocated? Uh, There are those who are beginning to make that argument today. On the flip side, is it reasonable for a small number of wealthy agribusinesses to maintain rights if urban users can barely shower? So there are lots of sacred cows in this state that are all difficult to come to grips with and which evoke strong emotional reactions that make it difficult to have an objective, civil, and informed discussion. This sort of discussion will require a good deal of intellectual honesty throughout the state. We cannot continue the north-south water controversy without acknowledging the fact that much of Northern California also imports its water. We also have to recognize that the economic engine of the urban areas is a benefit to rural areas too, and that, as Felicia indicated, goes both ways. In protecting our environment, a value I have always placed at the top of my list We need to be honest about how much of California has been made or altered by man. We have to protect our environment, but at the same time be mindful that sometimes the environment we are protecting from water diversions is no more natural than are the farms and cities that water is diverted to. Ultimately, we need to move past blame and guilt and embrace a picture for California that we can collectively work toward, one that protects both people and the environment. Now back to the money. The development of water resource projects is typically paid for by those benefiting and receiving the water. Projects are paid for by participants and beneficiaries. For instance, if a new Delta facility is ever built, it will largely be paid for on an acre-foot by acre-foot basis by those receiving the water. The state is not going to shoulder the cost of the project at the public's expense. Beneficiary pays is the way it has always been done. We know that an infinite supply of usable water could be created here if we are willing to pay the price. In other parts of the world, water is much more expensive than it is here. Higher price water could easily pay for more recycling, even desalination, and innovative technologies, even things as simple as investing in better irrigation systems. However, redefining the value of water and creating a change in pricing will require a cultural shift. And unless water becomes a truly socialized commodity across all areas of the state, it is still going to be the beneficiaries who pay. Identifying the appropriate beneficiaries is crucial as we balance who pays for California for developing California's water resources. If ag pays more water, 
may f if ag pays more for water via irrigation improvements, wouldn't that cost be passed on to all those who benefit from the agricultural products? Should California urban users share the resource they have already paid for and also invest in new resources in order to make more water available to ag, business, or the environment? Should the cost of new resources simply be borne by, the commu by communities who wish to grow? Or maybe should we create a fee for certain types of water use? California is truly a marvelous state, but we are a state that to a large extent we either created or altered. Now we need to come to grips with the societal divisions we have made in the past and do a better job of managing them, and then decide how much we are willing to pay for water and who should bear that cost. I can clearly see why water issues, like so many complicated issues in our society, are only nibbled at around the edges, but we do have the technical ability to prepare ourselves for the future. As we do so, beginning with maximizing the essential conservation measures we have begun and with, which Felicia outlined so clearly, we will need to confront our own history and vital but challenging equity issues in planning for the future. As a state, the question remains whether we will coordinate our efforts together and how will we prepare to, be success to successfully manage through a prolonged drought and climate change and do it civilly. Thank you. Thank you, and I'd like to ask all three panelists to please uh, come up again so we can have a, uh, I think, imagine a lively Q&A session. Uh, one thing I felt that I think everyone came to this session knowing we were dealing with a very complicated issue, but I think after these provocative uh, presentations, we recognize it's perhaps even more complicated than we appreciated before. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Uh, in a moment, we'll be passing microphones around to people in the audience to ask questions. I'd like to just ask one at the outset. I'm going to direct this to David, but all, any panelists can feel free to chime in. We're recognizing complexities. Water table. We didn't talk much about saltwater intrusion today. The issue of water rights, power usage implications, and the like. And then I think, David, you did an excellent job of talking about the potential of things we probably haven't emphasized enough in our own thinking, water reuse, stormwater harvesting, efficiency, seawater desalinization, and the like. What are your priorities in the sense of there are, and this would be true on so many of the ideas that are thrown out today. I like easy. I like low-hanging fruit. From your standpoint, what is kind of in, there's no such thing as a no-brainer, but what are the things you think, for God's sakes, we should be doing this? Well, in, in the urban environment, um, the place where we start is with conservation, and, and we've done great things now. So the, the low-hanging fruit is making sure that we don't backslide from the conservation that we've started to achieve in, in this drought and, and moving towards the policies that assure that we stay there. But the insidious thing about water conservation of the magnitude that we've done now is we only get to do that once. So that had always been our safety net. We knew that when we had a severe drought, we would be able to reduce water use by 35%. 
And in the next drought, we're not going to be able to do that again. And so it's going to force us to raise our game and make sure that, um, that, that we do the right things because we won't have the wiggle room next time. So the first thing we do is we make sure that the water conservation that we've done stays there. And we recognize that we're probably not going to go much lower because at a certain point, you transition from California-friendly landscaping to uh, cactuses and green concrete. And I don't think anyone wants that because it's uh, not only aesthetically unpleasing, but it causes the heat island effect in cities. Um, the second thing that is the low-hanging fruit is uh, probably water recycling. It's easier to pull off than uh, stormwater capture in terms of its economic efficiency. And there are a number of places in the state where that's happening now and where, there are the, where it's kind of relatively straightforward and easy to do. Um, the next things in the urban environment are really tough, and so it's going to force us to have those discussions about uh, the other sources of water that we heard about, and I, I think that that's going to be a really hard one to crack, not for technological reasons. I think there are a number of ways to use water more efficiently uh, on, in agriculture, more crop-for-drop kind of philosophies, but it's going to be hard because of the public policy and water rights that we just heard about. Um, but that, that's how I'd see the problem. Thank you. Felicia or Mel, would you comment on what your own personal priorities? Well, I, I think David hit the nail on the head with regard to the low-hanging fruit. Um, the point that Felicia made with regard to Mayor Garcetti's, he has a couple of goals. The first goal that Felicia outlined um, was uh, between now and 2024, uh, the goal of 25% um, reduction in water use and reliance on uh, increased reliance on local water. His next goal uh, by 2040, 16 years later, is moving to 50%. Um, I think in the context of low-hanging fruit, the low-hanging fruit will get us, if not to the 25%, at least in L.A., pretty close. But once you get there, then you start having the tougher questions because the low-hanging fruit will have largely been plucked. And then you get to the complex, challenging issues about finances, burden-sharing, equity, and whether the situation has developed to such an extent that you do have to consider um, making significant legal and societal changes, and, and, and that's going to be very tough. It's certainly a warning, though, we better get moving on these things. Well, we are moving on it. I mean, Felicia, has, who's been the, the top cop on this and who's uh, announcing every month what our uh, successes have been, has, uh, through her um, stewardship and uh, leadership, shown that the state's doing great in terms of what we're doing now. Um, but this needs, these need to become an ethic in California. They can't just be um, something that, that we're, we're doing now because we know how urgent it is. It's going to stay as a high priority, and that needs to be embedded into the culture, which it so far is not. I think Thank that's you. true. I, I, the only things I would add to that is on efficiency is I don't think we're anywhere near the end of what we can do in efficiency. So we haven't, you know, some places are more efficient. L.A., even L.A., which, you know, we were part of, Retrofitting LA in the last drought uh, can go a lot further. Every house does not have low flow fixtures. We haven't changed them all. There's a Padilla bill, uh, 
um, then-Senator Padilla's bill requires that everyone change out their fixtures to efficient ones in 2017. But the enforcement of that is that you're going to, you may not even know this, that um, when you, when the, uh, when it changes hands, you have to declare whether you've done it or not. That's the enforcement mechanism. But in theory, everybody should be retrofitting to whatever the state of the art is by 2017. So there, a lot of folks haven't throughout the state. The change in landscaping is a big one, and I agree completely with David. We, we don't need to be Las Vegas because we're not in a desert, except in the parts of California that are. Uh, most of it is a Mediterranean climate. You can have some lovely outdoor landscaping. When you think about the fact that up to 50, well, some places 80% of water is used outdoors, there's a lot, again, of savings um, there. And, you know, whether it's we talk about the drought or not, if we're saving more, then we have more in the Diamond Valley Reservoir or the things that folks have done to retrofit them. I, I'm very comfortable that figuring out how to exercise our groundwater basins more effectively, pump, treat, and serve, um, uh, so that you can use it for storage, but also you can even deal with past Superfund sites. We have the technology to, it's not rocket science to separate water from schmutz of all kinds. It's just a question of the application of money and energy. Um, so there's a lot we can do. And I think what would happen, maybe I'm wrong, I'm just guessing on a policy thing, we'll probably talk more about water rights. I've stayed away from saying we should change the water rights system. I'm not sure I would change it to because of all that embedded um, investment there and the fact that a lot of those senior water rights are actually agricultural and keep food costs down of healthy fruits and vegetables. Um, but what ends up happening is I think the risk is more to agriculture in a way because what will happen first is urban areas will buy that water in transfers from agriculture because they can just afford because of the density of people and the wealth to pay more. So I actually am fearful uh, for agriculture's future even without changing the water rights system. And I think everybody needs to, that's where people need to understand each other's values. Uh, farms need to be as efficient as they can, but right now under the water rights system, they plow that efficiency into more crop, more crop per drop. So Thank it's you. complicated. Uh, now we'll open it to the floor. Also feel free to direct it to a specific panelist or else the entire panel, as you see fit. Um, yeah, we heard about sacred cows and elephants and scapegoats. And it kind of makes me wonder if you all weren't kind of subliminally alluding to the huge um, part that animal agriculture plays in water, both water consumption and pollution. And in fact, Felicia did mention briefly um, how many hundreds of gallons of water it takes to make a slice of cheese or a hamburger. And given that consuming animal products is also known to be a public health um, problem, I'm wondering why public policy in the state shouldn't um, at least take on, uh, to some extent, the um, moving away from animal agriculture to other water uses. I'm happy to, to start with that. I, that is an, it, it's an excellent question. It does come up. I think it, it's embedded in a couple of things. One is what Mel was saying about the fact that we don't have a system where we on hide. I don't get to say no soup for you to a use that I don't like, even because of its water use easily. The waste and unreasonable use doctrine or theory, whatever you want to call it, there are whole arguments about what to call it. Um, is something that's about societal evolution. If you read the case law, uh, what was 
uh, seen as essential in one era can be seen as a luxury in another. I think we, we've actually used it a fair amount over the years, but we've tended to just have to threaten it, and action happens without using an example from the last drought would be saying uh, water in an ornamental fountain without a recirculating pump is a waste and unreasonable use in a time of drought. If we hadn't gone with targets, we probably would be marching down that about overwatering of ornamental landscapes. The issue is, if you look at the case law, it's not just what I think or what my five board members think. It's about societal changes. And I think if you take a time view, the fact that people are raising these issues and starting to learn how much water it takes, or more importantly, the climate impacts, you're going to see more and more people that's going to become a a norm. And that's the time at which that conversation sort of bears fruit. But it's consumer choice that will probably come first rather than a bureaucrat somewhere in in, uh, Sacramento or a, a legislature. And I also, it's more of a Malcolm Gladwell kind of tipping point thing where there are early adopters. I mean, there are things that, I mean, look at smoking. I mean, you can pick anything in terms of societal change. And I think as resources become more tight and awareness of climate, you'll find more and more people. I, I, I know so many people who have cut back on eating meat. I, I, my husband and I cut back for climate. You, we should be doing It's not like I never go to In-N-Out Burger. That's my, like, eco-sin. I'm confessing it to all of you. <laughs> but I'm really good on almost everything else. But... But the thing that's strange about it is, for us, why, and you raised this, why did it take climate change to get us to cut back, as opposed to the fact that eating as much of it as we were eating is going to kill us? I mean, it's just, it, people are crazy that way. Can I, can I just yep, say sure. something shorter and a little bit more directly to the issue you asked about? I think one of the biggest scandals today in California is the fact that people in the Central Valley are... Uh, forced to consume water contaminated with nitrate. And um, some of that is, is due to uh, animal agriculture in the Central Valley. And that reason in itself should be the reason that we look at this more carefully, not the water rights. Lynn, do you have... So uh, how do you increase the cost of water, you know, given the current water rights in California, if you're just looking at this as a purely economic problem? How do you increase the cost of water? Well, I'm not sure you just increase the cost of water. It's, if, you, if you invest in some of these more expensive um, solutions or practices, the cost of water will end up increasing. Um, the, the general goal remains, well, it's, t- it's sort of tricky. On the one hand, there may be a social value. There is, there's certainly a conservation value to raising the price of water. On the other hand, as much as people want to conserve, there will be an overwhelming resistance to raising the cost of water as there is an overwhelming resistance to raising the cost of anything. Mm -hmm. So the question really is to me, um, once one engages in technological practices that will force the cost of water up, how do you allocate that cost in a fair way? I mean, as... For the last two years, I've been president of the board of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, a world unto itself, um, which I learn new things about daily. Not all good, um, but it is a wonderful department that does provide water and power to the citizens of Los Angeles and does it pretty effectively. Um, Having said that, 
to me, the, the, the toughest questions are the equity questions. Um, the last question that I asked rhetorically, which I didn't answer, um, if, by, which implicitly suggested if some segments of society can, and this just is a tax question as well as a water use question, but if some segments of society uh, can well afford the resource you have and other segments desperately need it but can't, how, is it, how do you equitably apportion the cost? Those are tough questions. Uh, in L.A., what we do is we tier our water rates, and those are now questioned in court as to their constitutionality in the state of California because of a proposition that was passed a few years ago that says utilities cannot charge more to different users than the cost actually justifies. And we believe that because the cost for us of imported water is so much higher than the cost of local water, that if people use so much water that it requires us to import more, it justifies a higher tier or a higher cost. But those are the types of questions that I think will have to be resolved in terms of pricing. It'll go up once the technology requires it to go up. Then how do you apportion it? I'm not sure if that's confusing enough. No, I think that's true. You could also do a public goods charge. There are other, you know, Australia separated their water rights from land rights and that it's a free market. I'm not suggesting we go there, but they went whole hog on pricing. Gentleman in the blue shirt. This is a question for Ms. Marcus. Uh, regarding the recent settlement uh, between Justice and the Westlands Water District, could you give us a quick outline of the main points of that, how that will affect uh, water throughout the rest of the state? And if we think that it has a really negative effect, do we have any legal remedies? You know, that I can't because I actually don't. That wasn't with uh, us, and I, I watched it in the paper just as you did. I was involved in it years ago in other jobs, both EPA and NRDC, dancing in and out of it, but I'm not enough of an expert on it, um, nor could I opine on the legality of it. It is the settlement of a, a, a dispute over an agreement that the federal government made to deal with uh, drainage that they were never able to fulfill. They did give Westlands, it seems, but I don't totally understand it, sort of more preferred right to water, but I don't know the mechanism. I'm really sorry. I need to know the answer to that question. I don't need to know for my job, but I need to know, and I don't yet, so I apologize. Right here in the front. I live in Carlsbad, so I'm oh. familiar with the whole beef salad, and I have seen environmental concerns about yes. that. Yes. Next to us is your family, who's recycling, It's very interesting because we've cut that mm -hmm. significantly. But what's happening is the water department's raising rates. Sure. Not because we've cut back, but because they have less of an income to be able to sustain right. themselves mm -hmm. for ongoing. Right. Right. Then we have ranches that doesn't cut back at all because they go, what do we care? We can pay for it. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to be so fractional. Mm -hmm. With each county coming up with a different solution, mm -hmm. with the people within the county saying, why should I conserve my water bills going up anyway? Mm -hmm. How do you approach this? Well, it's such a good question. It's, it's complicated, and it takes a lot of conversation. In the, in the best cases, you have 
uh, water districts that spend a lot of time on customer engagement and explanation, there are uh, agencies that have been able to explain rates to folks, and, and they've actually changed to budget-based rates, and they've had to educate their uh, customers to say, here's what it costs us to run the system, whether you use a lot or a little. Here's the extra cost if you use a lot more, and they explain their tiered rates. Some have gone as far as allocation-based rates where they say, okay, in our community, here's a reasonable amount per person indoors, and here's a reasonable amount for this lot size with this evapotranspiration with a moderate landscape. You get that much, and if you use more, you pay through the nose. That's one way to, but it takes an off, yeah, a number of places. It takes a lot of work to do it, but that's what it takes to also deal with the legalities. Um, Rancho Santa Fe is an interesting um, example. That's where our regulations cut back based on if you're using a bunch, you're going to have a higher target than people who've already cut back a lot. Was it perfect? No, we had to do it in three weeks. But it at least starts to set a marker. And what, what some agencies are doing is they're doing it by actually setting the, these kinds of rate prices, but also by you can only water X number of times a, a week. But it, it, it is interesting. We have thousands of water districts in California that all do their own thing. They all have their own elected boards. So since they're elected, people get afraid of their customers versus going out to dealing with their customers. And so we kind of are in an era of a lot of experimentation and differences of opinion between agencies about which way to go. I mean, where you are, you're right in between the best managed groundwater basin around and a place that doesn't have a groundwater basin and is scared. And that's why you see the two different, two different choices. And all of those efforts are worth watching. Uh, but you're right, there are environmental impacts to desal. And we had on, on the marine environment as well. So. Do you have a question on this side, way back? Yes, you. Hi, my name is Carly. I'm actually a senior here at Cal, majoring in environmental economics, interested in state water policy. And I was wondering, you mentioned the human right to water earlier, and I was wondering if there are any state efforts or methods of distributive policy to address the environmental justice aspect of the drought, um, specifically in communities like the Central Valley. I'm from Bakersfield, and I was just wondering if there were any efforts that you, know, you think were you know, worth investing in, things like that. Well, thank you. I mean, it's all hands on deck. We have a long way to go. I think David very eloquently and concisely talked about some of the issues of quality in the Central Valley. We did a couple of reports a few years ago on that, and the numbers are shocking at this uh, time. But I think we've, the legislature passed the human right to water without implementation, but the administration is very committed to it. So we're constantly meeting and trying. With the more has happened on that than has happened in uh, decades. The In the bond, because we had safe drinking water for all in the water action plan. Uh, We now have over $500 million, largely for capital projects, for drinking water and wastewater treatment in disadvantaged communities. All of the rebate programs, half of that's targeted to disadvantaged communities. We've been delivering water and drilling wells. Ironically, there are communities we've been able to help because they're out of water that we're still struggling to figure out how to help because their water's crappy. So, you know, it's the issue of our time, but there's a lot going on. I'd like to build on your question. You commented you're from Bakersfield, and the next Speaker of the House of Representatives may also be from Bakersfield. And uh, I don't know much about his position on these issues, but does anyone want to give us any pithy insights or, or expectations? I, I won't touch that one, but I think that... Uh, <laughs> 
when, when we talk about this question of equity and, uh, and water rights, we're also talking about uh, rural communities versus urban centers. And I think it's much easier for an urban center to provide water and to uh, take care of low-income people. I think the challenge is going to be in some of our low-income communities that don't have a lot of investment in infrastructure and what happens to them under climate change. And we're going to face some tough choices about whether it makes sense for people to live in places where there's not an adequate water supply. And the cost of providing water in some of these places could be astronomical. And so that's one that I think we're going to see more about in coming decades. And it will be rural communities especially uh, that don't have the, the kind of larger hole to share the burden. Well, you know, you alluded to the polluted water in in a portion of the Central Valley. What recourse do those people have? I can only speak to the technological uh, aspects of it, and and it's quite expensive to treat nitrate-contaminated water. I think that's the. I mean, that's where people who work in policy and law really have uh, have insight into what's possible. But um, I, I think that. Uh, we should, shouldn't forget about them because right now neither is being done, the, the technological nor the legal and policy solution. Well, actually, a lot's being done, but there's a long way to go. We've got pilot projects out there on point of use, figuring out what's the most cost-effective treatment. UCLA is doing a fair amount of research on that for us, and a number of other folks were consolidating systems. We got the ability to consolidate small systems, big systems. But we won't really be able to turn the tide on that uh, until we have a funding source for O&M for these folks, uh, tied with consolidation for some. Um, and uh, uh, some communities, I think the biggest problem is folks who are on their own domestic wells and aren't a part of any system at all. That's where you have the biggest challenge. And then the public policy challenge is, how do you come up? And we will be proposing, we have proposed, but it hasn't gotten anywhere yet, a funding source to help subsidize O&M for some of the poor communities that don't have another choice. But you don't want to do something that subsidizes people to move to hell and gone just because they want to. But we have plenty of people who are somewhere through no fault of their own. You also have, again, I was talking about drought angels, you also have uh, farmers who are g- getting their good surface water supply that they use on their crops and getting it to people in nearby communities, in some cases because we've ordered them to in an enforcement action, which we can only do if we can actually tie the molecules together. Again, it's an enforcement action, but others are doing it kind of because it's the right thing to do. And, so. D- and Dick, very briefly, with uh-huh. reference to your question about the putative next speaker mm-hmm. and with reference to the... With reference to the uh, message of the class of 68 and the context of these lectures, I would suggest that you deputize the young lady from Bakersfield to approach the next speaker as a constituent and offer the class of 1968 as a resource for his caucus in civility. (laughs) Very very well said. The woman against the wall? Yes. Yes. Finally, okay. My question is in regarding to the water reuse, and I want to know who sets the standards for what goes into that water. I've been unable to find out from my own water agency how they're screening out, what things they're screening out, and what things are going through into the water that's being injected into the ground and eventually into the groundwater. So I want to know who's, who's setting the standards and what are those standards and what is, in fact, in the water that's going into the ground that's uh, recycled water. Yeah, we do. The Water Board does now. It used to be the Department of Public Health, but that, the drinking water program, but it moved into our 
our shop. So we um, have gone through a pretty uh, intensive process. Um, there are things in water. There are things in natural water courses as well. Most rivers are recycled water, ultimately, by the time they get where they're going. But actually, nature does some work in aeration and all of that. that again, 4.0, that book, really good at that. Um, so we set the standards, and we try and set them very carefully. When you're dealing with groundwater recharge, where it's percolating through the soil, there are limitations on residence time. You're, you're dealing with two things. You're dealing with pathogens, and you're dealing with chemicals. And what you do with more and more advanced treatment, like the pure water systems that San Diego, Santa Clara, it's going to be city, uh, County of L.A. and Met, um, and um, San Diego and Orange County do, is they treat it to pure water standards that meet all drinking water standards, and then they put it into the ground. And those are very, pretty strict standards. The, the things we're doing studies on are things... Um, uh, contaminants of emerging concern, things like endocrine disruptors and all that sort of thing. Uh, I'm told, because I raised some cautions, and I think half the people in the Water Reuse Association wanted to run screaming for the doors at a, a meeting, but if you're, you're doing this triple treatment of uh, filtration, reverse osmosis, which is really the same thing you do for desal, uh, ozonation or other things, you're actually killing a lot of things. But does that say we don't, we know absolutely everything? Is it totally pure? Um, the question is no, but it's probably a lot cleaner than this, and it's, as, it's cleaner, cleaner than tap water by the time they're through. So it's really a question of being quite um, methodical and careful. And again, how many layers of treatment do you add to it? How can you show, like those experimental agencies are doing it, they're putting their own money in to show they can do it consistently over time. What my folks are terrified of is the sloppy operator or the person that makes a mistake it, it's unforgiving if you're going to put it right into the system, which is why we have an expert panel reviewing it, and a report will be out with a feasibility study, which will likely say, here's what you would have to do to prove you were capable of doing it. It's also why it, it's very good for using in groundwater because you have resonance time or it percolates through soil, or you can inject it and sweeten up water that's salty. So it's really, again, it's just uh, it's the technology. We have uh, time. We're into our last five minutes, so I think we're going to have to take one last question, and then I'm going to give each of the panelists a chance to you know, maybe have a minute of concluding remarks of anything that you want to implore everyone to leave the room thinking. Hey there. Thank you for talking with us. Um, I am, wanted to touch base back with the agricultural question, considering that it does take up 80% of our developed water, and the small fraction that it does contribute to California's uh, gross, like domestic product. Is it unwise to maybe reconsider California uh, not as a uh, as agriculture as our economic priority and maybe like while we can't again like considering that we can't change our consumptive culture of meat products that is like a, uh, just our food culture as the westernized world um, but maybe just finding these products and importing them into California as opposed to us creating them and using our water resources that are very uh, finite so I was just wondering if it's unwise to consider agriculture as a as one of our economic domains and like trying to alter that, whether that be through incentives or some other design? I, th I think that's a great question. And I, I, I kind of 
fundamentally agree with your premise that when we talk with agriculture, it's unwise to draw a border around California and pretend that uh, when if agricultural productivity in California were to decrease, it wouldn't stimulate agricultural production elsewhere in, in America or other places in the world. Um, I don't think it should be presented as an either-or. You know, looking forward into the future with changes in California water policy, we're still going to grow a lot of food here and a lot of very high-value agriculture. And I think that um, that's you know that that should be part of these discussions. Is that you know in in, the, in light of civility, also reasonableness. It, it in no case is it either-or for cities and agriculture and and the environment. So. I think I think you're you're right that we should all think about it in, in a larger economic uh, situation. Do you want to segue into our concluding thoughts? Do you have thirty seconds or a minute of any uh, flag you want to wave, and we'll ask the other panels? Oh, okay. Um, well, I guess first of all, thank you very much for for coming. I really enjoyed the different perspectives on water and and the questions from the audience. I guess the the thing I want to leave people with is that. Um, it's not time for panic. There's plenty of water in California, and there will be plenty of water if it doesn't rain a lot next year. But it gets us thinking about how we respond, not in a time of crisis and emergency, but with a little bit of forethought. So some people allude to Australia and talk about it as being uh, uh, you know, accomplishing great things, but as you, you mentioned, it was accomplishing great things after being really uh, kind of lazy and letting them get really bad. And so uh, we've seen a lot of progress in the last few years and uh, recognize that we keep staying the course, and uh, this will be just a prelude to the larger um, challenges that we'll face with climate change adaptation in the future. Thank you. Felicia? Very good. i, I just say it's um, I, I'm also optimistic. I think um, I just think it requires the ability to have more thoughtful conversations, say about ag. I mean, tourism is only two percent of our two and a half percent of our whole state economy. There's not much that's more than that. So ag is big, and it's a hundred percent of some communities. So the numbers, um, as much as I appreciate economics, can leave me cold because food's about more than dollars and we probably import more water in our electronics than we export in our food. So I just think there's a need for greater literacy about water and greater conversation and I think we can make a lot of progress more productively as we find ways to have those conversations even in a fraught public policy environment rather than just uh, rhetorical badminton which uh, for some reason has been allowed to flourish in the California water world far longer than it should have. So I uh, really appreciate you setting the table for a thoughtful uh, discourse. And um, at where I'm seeing that happen gives me great hope. And I, I'm, I am seeing that shift to more people wanting to know what do we do to make things uh, work as opposed to how do I just keep repeating myself louder and slower Thank at you. someone else. Mel? Uh, unsurprisingly, I agree completely with Felicia's concluding remarks, which were kind of going to be very similar to what my concluding remarks were going to be. Let's keep focusing on these subjects. I mean, this drought uh, has caused a conversation that needs to, that needs to continue. And we need to stay focused on water as well as energy and renewable resources and the linkage between the two and the way to conserve in both areas. Um, there's no better place to do it than here. And it's wonderful, Dick, that you um, put this together and that I was able to be with such great panelists. And on a personal note, um, I, I'm in L.A. 
almost all the time, and I seldom get to be in an audience where I look out and I see Cal shirts and Cal hats, and it makes me very happy. So go Bears. Go Bears. <laughs>